Canucks fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Canucks Conversation, brought to you by the great folks at Zephyr Epic. We are fired up. Canucks are coming off a win. My name is David Quadrelli. I am joined, as always, by the man who built the place, Chris Faber. And later on this episode, Chris, sorry, I know you wanted to talk there, but Tony Gallagher, the Hall of Famer himself, the legend in this market, Tony Gallagher will join us. Join Chris, talk for about, what would you say, Chris, 40 minutes? Yeah, just shy of 40 minutes. It was uh awesome chat. You know, the funny thing was, and I'll get to this, I'll just touch on it now, but like, I called Tony, we we're supposed to talk at 1 o'clock today, uh, he picks up the phone and like, hey Tony, how's it going? Good, how about you? Didn't even take a split second, we're already like diving into the Canucks, we talked for like, probably 10 to 15 minutes, like before we even started recording about the team, and, and like, he was asking a lot of stuff about Pod Colson and the KHL and, and everything, like he's he's dialed out, right? Like he's not covering the team like he is anymore. He's more just kind of watching it from the outside, and and we get to that in the interview a little bit. But like, yeah, he was he was still really curious about a lot of things that that I kind of seem to know a lot more of. Speaking of like overseas prospects and stuff, and and yeah, it, it was a great conversation, man, from start to finish. Tony's a legend, and uh, getting to chat with him anytime is awesome. And he also happens to be on the episode of our most listened to episode of all time. Uh, so it's nice to get him back because uh, people seem to enjoy hearing Tony G talk, uh, and I see why because he's he's awesome, man. I, I could listen to Tony talk for for four hours straight, probably. Yeah, you know, every time we go on a podcast or anybody asks us, you know, what is your favorite interview you've ever done on the show? Mine is always that day that I drove over to your house and we interviewed Tony G and then had Harmon or Rick Dollywall right after. It, oh, it was awesome. It was just man. I, yeah, I'm excited to listen to it. I haven't got the chance to listen to it. We've kind of decided, I think people have kind of picked up on this. It's kind of hard to do interviews with both of us on the call if it's over phone. 
And I don't think Tony G is going to be using Zoom, and we didn't really want to put that on him. So yeah. we uh, we decided that Chris was just going to do this interview. But yeah, like last week when we had sat in Harmon, that was we were able to do that via Zoom. The audio quality is not too, too bad. But yeah, with the phone call, it just makes more sense to just have one person interviewing. So yeah. I'm excited to listen to that, just like everybody else listening to this episode. But Chris, we have to get to something, like the most pressing matter at hand. It's not about the Canucks. It's about something I posted on Twitter. It was after you texted me and basically just told me, hey, they're filming Batwoman in my backyard. And I was like, what? And you're like, yeah, they film a lot of Riverdale here too. And I was just like, I didn't get any further explanation. I'm saving it for the podcast. I have just as many questions as the people who saw that tweet and as all the people listening right now. Explain yourself, Chris. I'm very intrigued by this. Yeah, so, like, the place that I live in, in kind of South Surrey, White Rock area, it's kind of like our backyard goes off into basically what used to be like an old school. Um, it's it's a school that's shut down now, I guess, and, and it's a great spot for filming, apparently. Like, ever since I've moved here, there's been, you know, they do it for normally like a week or so. They'll come and film for like a full week straight. A lot of them are like night scenes, I've noticed, so I'm guessing that maybe if you are like a fan of Riverdale or, or Batwoman, like I've, I've never seen those shows. I think I watched a little bit of Riverdale, and then it just started getting absolutely whack, and I don't know what the yeah, hell is going on there. Me too. Uh, me so too. I stopped watching after like a season or two, maybe. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of filming going on in my backyard, pretty much. Like, I can see it out the window of my of my room. If I go out in the backyard, it's literally like you know, 20, 20 to 100 feet away from me is where they're filming stuff. Uh, and yeah, they were here doing Batwoman last week. You know, like they show up and there's about 10 of these semi-trucks and there's so many huge bright lights and all the filming that they do is normally between like, so we just got a schedule because they're about to film something right now, like over the next seven days. They're fil- I don't even know what the show is called, but they sent us like a letter. They normally just post like a letter and tape it to our front door and they're like, oh, hey, we're going to be filming blah, blah, blah for these many days, the neighborhood seems to be enjoying it or something or i don't know what the hell's going on but anyways they film a bunch of stuff in my backyard and it's normally from like 11 in at night until like five in the morning so there's like these super bright lights and they're all doing all these filming and i'm guessing a lot of it's done kind of in the school or around the school to get that kind of vibe and yeah i I don't know it's kind of cool like i don't know if they film any like major things here but like batwoman's i guess pretty big that's a tv show i don't really know much about it i don't watch much tv but i think riverdale was pretty huge i think that's the bigger show out of them and they filmed quite a few things here and yeah it's like now that filming's kind of cranking up a little bit more around Vancouver, I don't know if other people have really noticed it as well, but uh, now that they're kind of cranking up, we've had like three shows in the past probably two months that's been like filmed right in our backyard. So yeah, it's kind of cool, I guess. It's just kind of weird because they do a lot of their filming, like I said, at such a weird time of the night. So I don't know. It's interesting. It's a cool story, I guess, in the end. You know, I wonder if they use the inside of that school for the show because what what we did actually you, you remember i think i've told you this you know i was like a bit of a child actor right like a struggling child actor i didn't act much but okay. i had a few things and every time we had to do a school thing mind you this is only two roles that i landed every time we had to do that we went to lord bing i think it's a secondary school in vancouver and i think it's like just past kitsilano in point gray i don't know i'm sure there's going to be at least one listener listening to this show that went to that school i think it's called lord bing so if you if you went to lord bing send us a tweet on twitter cuz i'm really really interested because that was the place we did a lot of filming it felt like and those were two separate projects and like one of them was just like a commercial and then the other one i don't want to get into the old acting career um, no, wait no but... hold on a second i've never heard this from you 
I've never told you that. You've I, never I told me that have... you had an acting career. Yeah, I must have. I must have some old stuff. I know okay, I have. Well, I have you, this... you better tell us about it a little more now. Like, what the hell? You got to tell us the okay. show. You can't just hide it. I a hundred percent told everybody on this show. Maybe I just told it on a Patreon show. Okay, okay, everybody. So this movie called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close got horrible reviews. But anyway, Tom Hanks, Sandra Bullock. Okay, they did the they did the casting for the lead character who was a kid, uh, in. Like, they, I think they did, like, an open search, okay? And I got a bunch of callbacks for that. And that was, like, my first big thing. And then, you know, I had, like, an acting coach. My mom was like, man, like, you could really land this. Like, you should you should go for it. And I was like, I think I was, like, 11 what or 12. What the hell is like, going on right now? I, I don't I not know any okay, of this. Okay, everybody listening, Google extremely loud and incredibly close, okay? Look at the picture of the kid that won it. He looks, like, very similar to what I looked like as a kid. Like, you can tell they were going for a very specific look with this actor. Look up the kid, Chris. Look up right now. Pull it. Pull a Dave. Look up right now. Extremely loud and incredibly close. That's the title of the movie. Tom Hanks, Sandra Bullock. I nearly landed the role, I felt like. We got so many callbacks. Uh, oh, I, like, yeah, yeah. You, you see the kid, right? He, yeah, he totally he's, got nice, like he's got nice looking blue eyes, though. That's why you didn't get the part quads. I've got blue. I've got nice blue eyes. Get out of yeah, here, man! You know, I don't you know, man. Look into my eyes once in a while. Jeez. No. Um, the the thing is, the kid that landed it. Okay, he had he was just coming off of winning Kids Jeopardy, so like he was already <laughs> on TV, and like I think he may have edged me out because my uh, my my acting experience up to that point, my resume was like a couple school plays, and uh, that was it. But yeah, I I, uh, I I had that way back when. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. There's a commercial. Uh, this is one of the things. It was for, I believe, the United Way. Um, and I basically just played a kid that got bullied, um, which was which was fun because <laughs> the kid that was playing the bully was actually really nice. And we, we were stuck there like all day. Thankfully, it wrapped up in one day. But holy cow, it was like so bad. The kid had to take a pudding cup out of my hands. And I just had to look shocked. That was literally it. There's, it's like two seconds. I'm in that commercial for two seconds. And then the other thing that I was at, that was at Lord Bing. The other thing I was at Lord Bing for was because some, it was some Vancouver 2010 Olympic catalog. There was a skier. I can't remember her name. It was Ashley something. Uh, and she was like blonde. And all we had to do was like sit beside her and like look at her gold medal. And she was like decked out in uh, Team Canada gear in Vancouver 2010. And we were just in regular clothes. And we just had to like sit around her and like look at her gold medal. And it was for some catalog or something, I think, for uh, the 2010 Olympics. Again, you have to remember, I was like 10, 11 at this time. Like I stopped acting when I was. 12 or 13 it was only like a two or three year career and then the other thing was a chips ahoy commercial uh went hard for it didn't land it but yeah the two two things that i landed the big things were the uh the catalog and the united way commercial but i almost had that movie i almost had that movie chris damn quads what happened you used to be a star Hey, I'm I'm a star now. What are you talking about? I carry this show. <laughs> yeah, you definitely do. I uh, I also have an acting thing in our family. Like I I must have told this on the show before. And by the way, if Tony's listening to this episode, I'm so sorry, Tony. <laughs> we're doing this at the start, but is I have something to add on to your story. So my dad for a while was also an actor. Uh, I I must have told you this before, but do you know the movie White Chicks? Yes, yes, you've told me this story, yeah. Yeah, so I must have said on the podcast before, too, he has a very small part. He plays one of the waiters uh, when they're at the auction, and he elbows one of the white chicks in the head. 
uh, when they're like, oh, thanks for getting us sat at the loser's table. And then it's my dad elbowing them in the back of the head and walking by, dumping some dishes or something. So that's his his two seconds of, of fame uh, in his acting career. So both of you guys, you know, just fizzled out too early, I guess. Both, you, you know, maybe maybe you have to pick up that acting chop down the road here. I don't know. What are they like? What Maybe you can get into one of these movies. You'll have to come stay at my place and just try and sneak on the set when they start <laughs> filming whatever the hell they're filming next week here or something. I don't know. Just show up, be like, what, you guys don't remember me? And just, come on, come on, it's me, yeah. it's me. Put it's me like a, you just start handing out, like, a bunch of photos of you as, like, a 10-year-old <laughs> kid. And just be like, I could have been this kid on whatever movie you were talking about. Like, extremely oh loud and gosh. incredibly close. That could have been me. That should have been me. And then we'll see what uh, what they say. But the funny thing is, like, when they leave these, these things on our door... They like they leave all the information for like the guy who's running the set, like the guy who's uh, I don't know in charge of like security. So like we have an inside source right now. Like we can get you on the set for sure, Quads. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, you'd have to house me when I inevitably get kicked off the set and carried out by security. I'd have to come crash at your place. The best part would be if like we get you in there and then Thomas Horn shows up. Oh, and he's coming off of that fresh Jeopardy money that he's been saving for. I don't know, 15 years, and he just throws some money at you and tells you to get the hell off the set. You better censor that name on the final final version <laughs> of the podcast. Oh, that that name's that name brings back bad memories, Chris. He's why I quit acting. No, I'm just kidding. He's he's a nice guy. Tough. There's nothing. How, nothing how wrong do you with think him. you would have done? You seem like you're a pretty smart kid as a child. Like I I wasn't. I, I was so bad at school and stuff. How do you think you would have done on Child Jeopardy? And this will be the last thing we talk. We'll get to Canucks in a second here. Yes, uh, really good. I actually like I watch Jeopardy a lot, and I'm I'm pretty good at it. Like I I, I I'm not trying to brag or anything, but like my dad really liked Jeopardy, and there was no child Jeopardy when I was a kid. So when I was like seven to eleven, uh, you know, I would come home. It would be like seven o'clock or whatever on Check the Island Channel. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what carried Jeopardy. So yo, we shout out, Jeopardy. shout out Check on the Island, bro. Shout out Check on the Island. So I would watch Jeopardy all the time, and that was, like, the adult game, and I was starting to learn all this stuff. So, like, you probably noticed this, Chris, just, like, random, like, books, random, like, facts, like, I know weird stuff, and I think it's just from watching a bunch of Jeopardy and remembering everything, because, I don't know, I have a pretty good memory, uh, and, yeah, I don't know, maybe maybe I should uh, apply to be on the show, that'd be that'd be pretty sweet but chris we gotta get to some canucks talk yeah, i was I don't gonna know. say we're like 12 minutes into this we almost want to just post this on the patreon like to what we normally do all right let's get into it yeah seven if one you, win good well good time to plug the patreon if you want more of this or if you don't if you want more of it go to the patreon uh five and ten dollar club gets you all of the bonus content and a lot of the bonus content is literally what you just heard for the past 13 minutes but now we'll actually get into the real show maybe we should put a disclaimer maybe at the start of the show be like actual hockey talk starts at 13 minutes but anyway chris seven to one victory for your vancouver canucks this was a weird win like when when we talked last time, Chris, I said to you, like, they had to win these games against Ottawa, not squeak it out, not win 6-5. to five. They had to win in commanding fashion, and that's exactly what they did. Morale was low for this team, and there's nothing better to bump morale than a 7-1 to one win where Brandon Sutter picks up his first career hat trick 13 years into his NHL career. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely caught me off guard. I, I think you tweeted out from the Canucks Army account early on that, like, is Brandon Sutter elite after his first goal? And I was like, oh, God, here we go. Then he puts a hat trick up, you know, triple down your bet. So, like, I don't know. It's good to hear that some of your bets are going good because I heard about your Bodog account. But Hey, I hit a I, good one last night. Yeah, okay, sure you did. But, uh, <laughs> like, I just... 
yeah, like this is something that, that this needed to happen, right? Like, I mean, this Canucks team was trending down very quickly. And if they, if Ottawa Senators, if they came in and gave it to the Canucks in that first game on Monday with back to backs coming up, back to backs were in this season, I think we're going to see a lot of splits and back to backs. I think a lot of teams are going to be able to bounce back from a loss uh, during these back to back nights. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that uh, in this series that we see against the Ottawa Senators as well. So they they needed that win. And and you know what? Like a lot of people were against them. I was definitely in the camp of, wow, this is going bad really fast, right? Like there was a lot of rumors going out there about Jim Benning from some pretty reliable sources. Some people that talked to a lot of people in the organization were tweeting about it. We noticed it. A lot of people on Twitter noticed it. Elliot Friedman was kind of the only one of these big stars who was saying that like, oh, don't worry, it's not happening. And that's an interesting situation, right? I mean, like Jim Benning through seven games looked like he was really on a hot seat. And now you're not seeing a lot of that over the past 24 hours since a 7-1 win, but you still have to believe that he's in the hot seat. I think with a lot of situations on this Canucks team so far, and everybody that's kind of talked about the situations that have led to this through the first seven games of the season, there are reasons to believe that he's put them in a situation where they might not be able to succeed due to where the money is locked up. I looked at this the other day. Right now, up into eight games through this season, 15% of the cap is absolutely useless to the Vancouver Canucks on the ice right now. Like 15% of the salary cap in a year where the cap's not going up is absolutely useless to the Vancouver Canucks. That's a really bad spot to have your team in. I know that the Roberto, the Roberto Luongo money, not his fault. That's $3 million of it. But like, there's a lot of other situations where he's put himself in here. And that's only absolutely useless. That's 15% not even being on the ice. Not to mention Tyler Myers at $6 million, Jay Beagle and Brandon Sutter at their high uh, contracts. And like, they're actually playing on the ice. But there's still reason to believe that that seat should be pretty hot. Until this Canucks team can start to turn it around. I, I heard Scotty Rintoul on the broadcast talking about how how above 500 the Canucks are going to have to be just to get into the playoffs yeah. already. And we've seen some of the, the numbers coming up uh, from people who do a lot of analytics with this to, to register what percentage a team has to make the playoffs. And man, it's, it's already trending really far down for the Canucks. I think I saw them under 20% uh, under one of the models for what teams will make the playoffs with. So it's going to bounce back and forth and, and games against divisional teams can give you an opportunity to get back into things quicker. But this, this doesn't just end the hot seat for Jim Benning just because of one blowout win. Right, Just because he's not going to get fired because of seven games or shouldn't be fired because of seven games doesn't mean that he's completely safe after one game. Like they need to go, like the Canucks need to go out and win. In my opinion, they need to beat the Senators in all three of these games. After what you did to them in game one, just knowing that your team has the ability to beat a team 7 1, that should get you two more wins in the rest of this series. Yeah. They, okay. So, a couple things. They should win them. Yes. But I don't think that if they don't win both of them, that Jim Benning's back on the hot seat. Because the latest reporting we've seen, I really want to cite somebody, I can't remember where I read this, but they were talking about how Matt ownership really would like to wait until the end of the season to make a decision before they just come out and ax him. You know, it's it just doesn't make sense from a financial standpoint. So they'd like to make a decision at the end of the year. The the thing we've kind of heard is playoffs are bust. And that makes sense. You know, the bar gets raised when you make the playoffs last year. Absolutely, that makes sense. But I don't think a mid-season firing, which which is, you know, very, very, you know, in the cards 
48 hours ago, right? Like if, if they came out and got blown out by the Sens and then did the same thing three times, or even, even if they squeaked out one win, but they squeaked it out or they just squeaked out two wins. But when you win in commanding fashion like that for a team that's so low on morale and looks to have come out of the gate with no mojo at all, not even lost their mojo, just no mojo at all. You know, you've got guys like Nate Schmidt talking today about how, you know, we're, we're learning each other's tendencies. Him and Edler are still making some mistakes with each other, he said, but they're talking it through and they're starting to get more vocal. He's actually turning Alex Edler into a vocal player, which is uh, pretty funny. That's what uh, Schmidt was saying today in the call. But here's the thing, Chris, is a team that's so low on morale and just getting beat up by a top team in the division in Montreal. Like, Montreal's better than we thought, I think. Like, I, I think a lot of people thought they were overrated, myself included a little bit. But man, Montreal Montreal is just so deep, and the, I'm not even going to get into why they beat the Canucks so badly, but the proof is in the pudding. Montreal is going to be a top team in this division. That's just a statement of fact now. Now, what could help the Canucks for a team, you know, a team that's stumbling so hard and can't find their systems and they're making too many mistakes and their stars aren't quite going yet. You know what really helps you figure it out and you don't have any preseason games? These almost work as preseason games when you're playing a team like Ottawa for three games, right? Like it really helps a team get used to their stuff because if they make a mistake against Montreal, they're going to pay. If they make a mistake against Ottawa, maybe they have a couple more seconds to recover. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it well, almost yeah, helps them. They still count, man. They still count. And, and, like, Ottawa has players that can beat you. They didn't They didn't do it because they really shot themselves in the foot. Like, they looked like yes. the Canucks in the first seven games. Like, look at some of the giveaways that they had. Like, the Canucks were pressuring, and I thought they did a good job of, of actually bringing pre- – like, I noticed – and I'll, I'll pass it back to you quickly here, but did you notice that – like, when a senator was behind the net with a pocket defenseman, how quickly, like, a Roussel yes. or a Mott or a Hoglander pressured him? Like, that yes. was different. They weren't just standing in front of the net. You did see that a little bit with a guy like Pedersen or Miller. Like, they were standing in the crease waiting for the pass or trying to disrupt the pass. But, man, like, I saw something from Tyler Mott, Antoine Roussel, and Niels Hoglander last night where they just said, like, I'm just going to attack you. Like, I'm going to force you to make a yeah. quick decision. And a lot of the times it resulted in the Canucks gaining possession and quickly turning over the puck from the from the Senators' mistakes that they made. Yeah, and to do that, you need your wingers to be covering the breakout pass on the side, right? And one of the wingers right. was kind of drifting in the middle, which was really good because it worked. Like, it worked numerous times. And, man, what can you say about Nils Hoglander, eh? Like, holy smokes, this guy's work ethic, Chris, he just goes into every board battle so hard. And, like, you know... I, I, I hate to rag on anybody, but it's like, he's almost like the opposite of Jake Vertanen. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's kind of the comparison that comes to mind. Like, he is literally the opposite of Jake Vertanen. Like, he goes into every board battle super, super hard. And it's just, it, it's a nice sight to watch, especially for a guy who's who's been on this show and we've watched him a lot in the SHL. And, you know, his, his role in the SHL wasn't even as big as it is now in the NHL, which is just mind-boggling to think about. But man, like... Like I, I tweeted out yesterday, guy is second in goals among, uh, or sorry, first in goals among rookie, I think, and fourth in points or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was, but holy cow, he is just, he's on right now. Well, he's, he's making that Horvat line just 
just excellent. Like I, there's an article right now for you in the pending reviews at Canucks Army, uh, breaking down the whole situation. And you look at the numbers that that line is putting up right now, and it's it's remarkable. Like it's it's incredible to see the numbers that they're putting up. I believe something like six plus goals per sixty right now coming from that line when they're on the ice. So every ten minutes of ice time that they get on five on five, they're producing a goal. Well, like through through eight games, they've only allowed three goals against at five on five. Like they've they've been incredible to start this season and. Not only like in a seven to one game, like where they were on the ice for three goals each, but throughout the season, even when they've been getting beat, that line when they're together, they're playing good hockey. Like they're getting scoring chances on a team that's getting outchanced a crazy amount so far early in this season, and everything just seems to work. And and I'll give my take on that line a little bit because I think that the reason why it works so well and why it's worked so well for Huglander is like Huglander was playing on a third line in the SHL. Think about what quality of players you're going to be playing with in the SHL on a third line. Like, they're not great, you know. Like, they're they're solid pros in your in a European league that's probably the third best league. Or, I mean, the AHL is probably, like, I'd say the AHL might be even better, like, quality of players. But it's, it's way more fun to watch the SHL, by the way. But, like, probably the fourth best league in the world, the SHL. And argue, like, people can argue that. But the third line that you're getting... Some of those players just aren't going to be ready to play with a guy who's thinking the game at such a speed that Niels Huglander is. And why he's working so well with Tanner Pearson and Bo Horvat is two of their strengths for Horvat and Pearson is they do great job on the boards. Like I've always said, it feels like Tanner Pearson's stick is made of lead. Like when he's in a board battle, he pulls the puck out of it a lot. You're not going to see his stick flex at all when he's in a board battle. Like he's just pushing the puck to try and get it to his teammate on board battles. I think he does a great job doing that. And both Horvat and Pearson do a good job of going to the net with their stick on the ice. And when you have that and you have two players that know their role and know what they do well at the NHL level, and then you add a player that just fits right, like Nils Huglander can create space in the offensive zone, not only create space, but he's done an excellent job of finding space in the offensive zone. Like watch all the scoring chances that Nils Huglander is a part of. And then just watch, like, even if you have a chance to do this while you're watching the game, like, rewind it, like, 10 seconds after a scoring chance that involved Niels Huglander and watch him when he's away from the puck. Like, he he just surveys what's going on in front of him. He sees where the open ice is going to be. And then he gets there and either takes a shot or fires a pass to somebody. And if he catches that pass when Pearson or Horvat's going to the net, you're looking at a goal. Like, it. that's why that fits so great. It's the combination of Huglander's vision and passing ability with Pearson and Horvat's ability to go to the net and do the dirty things to get goals. And I just, it's working, man. It's really, really working. And I, I said at the start of the year, I, I didn't think it would work. Like, I didn't think the way that Travis Green was going to play that line was going to work for Niels Huglander to be on Horvat's wing. And I think Travis talked about it a little bit, even last night in the he media did. that he talked about. Like, he's been kind of surprised by it. Right, like he didn't, he wasn't sure if it was going to work, but they went for it. And props to Travis and whoever else in the organization pushed him to make that move. But it's worked, and it's probably been the best decision that Travis Green has made this season to have Huglander on Horvat's line. Absolutely, and t- further to your point, Chris, what Travis was talking about was he can start deploying that line in a matchup role. He started. He said, "You know, I wasn't sure." about Hoggy's defensive game when he was coming in, but he's shown that he can do it. He makes a few mistakes here and there, sure, but for the most part, he's shown he can handle it, and that's massive for a coach. A young player earning a coach's trust, that is massive. So, I mean, we'll talk about... But you know what, Quadson? When we interviewed him on the show, and the time that I interviewed before him, I think Mm -hmm. both times we asked him, like, what would it be like to play with Elias Patterson? And the thing that he brought up, which is kind of a cliche answer to say, but... 
the thing that he said, like, he was bang on by saying, I'm excited to play with anybody in the NHL. Like, they're NHL players. Like, it's almost like he knew what he was getting into when he got line mates that were NHL quality line mates. Like, he said that both times in both the interviews that he's done on this show. He said he just wants to play with NHL caliber players. Like, he wants to be on an NHL line. And he's proven that, like, exactly what he said on this show is exactly right. Like, now that he's playing with NHL players, his game has improved a ton. Yeah, you're absolutely bang on. We're going to cut to Tony G, Chris, because we've talked for almost 30 minutes and people came here for Tony. Uh, So on the other side of the break, (laughs) we'll go to that chat with Tony Gallagher. And then after that, we'll come back. I've got a few things to say about goaltenders because, of course, I do. And Chris and I will break down a few more things. You are listening to the Canucks Conversation. Zephyr Epic is Canada's source for trading card games and sports cards. They ship free anywhere in Canada on orders over $50, and you can use promo code Hockey Season with a capital H and a capital S, all one word, Hockey Season, to get $5 off your order exclusively for Canucks Conversation podcast listeners. Be sure to join them live on Twitch for Epic Case Break openings follow them on twitter and instagram and facebook at zephyr epic z-e-p-h-y-r epic on all platforms do you ever have a long work day where you just forget to hit the liquor store on the way home and then you got no beer for your game well problem solved folks same day delivery now from the folks at parallel 49 beer that's right the p49 crew is here and available on uber eats All that brew directly to you with Uber Eats and Parallel 49's online store. Shop.Parallel49Brewing.com or check out more information on their Twitter and Instagram pages at Parallel49Beer. Oddshark.com is your home for sports odds, picks, betting, and futures. Speaking of futures, my big bet right now is taking Braden Holtby to win the Vesna. You've heard Chris and I talk about that if there's anybody that can get Holtby back, it's Ian Clark. So we bet, well, we, I say we, it was just me. I bet that Braden Holtby would win the Vesna. That's my big bet. Go make a play at oddshark.com. All right, short and sweet one here for our friends at Mike's Hard Lemonade, the Blue Freeze. If you haven't tried it, folks, you need to get out and try the Mike's Hard Blue Freeze. By far my favorite alcoholic beverage on the market right now. If you're going to just enjoy a few drinks at a game or it's a Saturday night and you got a Zoom party with some of your friends, take yourself down to the BC Liquor Store which or your local liquor store, wherever you get drinks. Pick up some Mike's Hard Blue Freeze, the best tastiest drink on the market right now. All right, guys, joining me now, returning guest of the show, one of our favorites, actually our most listened to episode, Tony, so I appreciate you coming on for that, uh, and you're back on the show now to chat about the Vancouver Canucks current situation, and we kind of just wasted about five minutes of good quality content just chatting about the team, uh, but how you doing? Tony Gallagher, how you doing, my friend? I'm very well indeed, very much enjoying retirement. Uh, Susan and I are somewhat anchored here in Vancouver, as is everybody with the uh, pandemic and so on, but... Uh, we're uh, we're doing well. I don't pay quite as close attention to the team as I once did, which I think is understandable. And uh, so, you know, I'll beg people's indulgence when my knowledge is fine, marginally lacking in places. At least I hope it's only marginal <laughs> lack, anyway. But no. I'm sure you can correct me uh, if I go wrong. So 
Yeah, it sounds good. Well, you've been you've been spinning some facts and stats back at me already, Tony, before we started recording here. So I know you're still involved a little bit. But what's it like oh, for you? I mean, switching from having to cover and write and, you know, even even after you stopped writing as much, you still did some some radio hits. But what's it like for you now just looking at the team, you know, from an outside perspective now? Well, I, I mean, I, I look at the early struggles and uh, I, I say simply this is, uh, you know, has been predictable and I has been largely predicted by almost everybody uh, for the last three years because of the, you know, the impending contract squeeze they were going to face. And now they're beginning to face it. And uh, it's it's rearing its head right now. And the slow start is partly uh, due to that fact. But, I mean, when you have contracts like, uh, I'll mention Brandon Sutter off the top. I mean, he paid off big time last <laughs> night. It was great to see that because I see Brandon in my neighborhood here. See him walking with his son and that and uh, uh, get a chance to say hello. And uh, so I was really, really happy for his hat trick last night. But and that's a tough contract for the Cox and then so on down the line with the Myers and the Ericsons and uh, you knew that would have its, uh, have its impact somewhere. And it is going to impact this team, uh, you know, from here on, at least until they, they start to run out. And uh, it's, it's a problem for them and it's going to, you know, slow the progress of this group. Absolutely. And, and you saw a team obviously in the playoff bubble there that went on a good run. And then you saw quite a bit of changeover. I mean, looking at it, a lot of these core pieces, Chris Tanev, Jacob Markstrom. I mean, Markstrom's a two-time MVP of this team over the past couple of years. How much do you think of that changeover is due to what the salary cap situation was for the Vancouver Canucks in the offseason? Well, obviously a great deal. I mean, Markstrom was somebody they definitely, I'm sure, wanted to keep. I mean, they had a tremendous electricity. And you have to know that Markstrom probably wanted to stay here with Ian Clark here. Mm. And, and keep this good thing going. So he was looking first and foremost to stay here. So for him to bolt and go to Calgary must have meant to me that the Canucks were not particularly close. And so, you know, you, you have to be close to get people to, to take a home. You either have to be close or be early mm. for, for players to take uh, a hometown discount. And, for the Canucks not to be able to get this guy had to hurt. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think Braden Holtby was a decent uh, gamble, uh, but whether he is able to, over the course of a season, play at that level is highly suspect. I think the chances are unlikely. I mean, there is no telling how good that Markstrom and, and Clark might have gotten together. Uh, Markstrom was just beginning to come on, and, of course, learn how to utilize his great size with the new ability to move, the new ability to anticipate and to read, which is something that, you know, was absent the first 25, 26 years uh, of his life. Right. And he was just beginning to hone those skills. So I think, you know, in the next three, four years, had he and Clark stayed together, uh, they might have been really golden years for Markstrom. Well, I think you saw that a lot of people were throwing Markstrom's name into the Vesna conversation last year, and well, they were, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. I thought behind that back end, yep. I mean, Quinn Hughes was in his first year making mistakes as you would expect. I mean, loving everything that Quinn Hughes was, of course, right. but you know, noticing the 
the errors, the you know the, the the problems with reads, the problems with getting out muscled, with not learning position. I mean, all those things that any first year defenseman goes through, especially first year in pro like that. Uh, so you saw that right right through, and then you know the absences of some various other guys. I mean, I, I don't know what you mean by last year. When you say last year, my mind always goes back to when there were fans in the stands. The last year, per se, I guess, was another year of of hockey without fans, and I just, uh, it's such a different game. Uh, it, the impact on no fans, of no fans, I should say, is remarkable to behold, and people, I think, underestimated. It's really changed the nature of the game. Well, and I think not only the game, but the way that we're starting to see it, I think, as fans. And I, and I want to bring up a, a moment from last night. You hear two massive F-bombs uh, on the broadcast from JT Miller. Oh, yeah, right. And uh, I think just covering the game and seeing that side of it, and you know, hearing a little bit more of what we hear on the ice, I, I wonder what it's like for a player. Like, I, maybe you can maybe put your head in it because you've been around the industry for so long and dealt with so many of these guys. What is it like for these aggravators? Because we touched on it a little bit before we started recording. But what's it like, do you think, for them to try and get engaged and play their game when there really isn't any fans or any momentum? I mean, the crowd noise is being pumped in, and there's a great story uh, by Daniel Wagner about that this past week, about the guy who's pumping the crowd noise into it. Do you think that does enough? Like, the fact that you're playing the sport well, and you have the crowd close noise? To enough. I mean, what uh, what allows the, the enforcer, we'll call them, or tough guy or goon or, uh, to exist is the excitement of the crowd, the anticipation, which builds to something. And you can clearly see that fans are enjoying it. And ergo, there is a a thought among collective management, well, let's give the fans what we want. I mean, surely there must be. And Mm. so they have tolerated the tough guy and the enforcer, and in fact, the intimidator, the person that keeps other players honest on the ice and a guy that, you know, backs down certain types of behavior on the ice. Mm. So this guy, I mean, it's been my contention that over the years, that fellow has largely been useful. Uh, Granted now with the size of the player now and the, the fact that they haven't made the rink any bigger, I think that could be successfully argued that his utility is dropping and that the collisions are too great, the size of the athlete is too great to allow the that to continue unabated. But without fans, there is no anticipation. There's no um, almost crowded demand for the confrontations. Mm. And pumped-in noise, I mean, the, the, they don't even know which button to hit prior to a fight. <laughs> sort of thing. Can I throw something at you real quick, Tony, about that? Because I think think the way that we're seeing that position, you want to call it the enforcer, the aggravator, or the goon, whatever you want to call it, it seems like it's almost evolving a little bit. And I think you're seeing that perfect example is the Kachuk brothers, right? I mean, they, it seems like maybe without the fans, it's fine for them because they, they seem to just grow off of pissing other players off. Like, are you seeing an evolution in kind of the role of the aggravator? Well, yeah, uh, they they don't have um, they don't have the same level of involvement in the game that they do when there's a crowd, when there's more emotion in the mm. game. I mean, let, let's face it, the games are clinical now. It's st- 
studio hockey. It's like uh, you and I on a podcast. There's no, there's no outside stimulus. Right. And that's why there are so many penalties called. It's because the officials are operating in a vacuum. Hmm. So they're clinically refing the game. Ergo, tons of calls, tons of power plays. And I think, in theory, I know the Canucks have been dreadful on the kill. They've been shorthanded as many or more than any other team. So that's hurt them. But to be in games where there are a lot of penalties called is helpful to the Canucks. They have to get a better kill, obviously. but And their power play has to get going. Mm-hmm. But those types of games help the Canucks. It led to their success in the playoffs. Getting their PP out there seven, eight, nine times a night sometimes oh. in these clinically called games. And that... That really helped, and we predicted that before, and I did on the team anyway when I was on one of my some of my last appearances. You knew that the referees would get into the sterile environment mm. and start calling everything. I mean, seriously, have you ever seen playoff games where you get seven, eight, nine power play opportunities mm. for a team? Usually in the playoffs. The, the, the officials call one against each team in the first 10 minutes, then maybe one or two more, and then third period one on, play. they dine on the whistle. Yep. And that's, and, but that was not the case in these games last year. Really helped the Canucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's face it, this year they haven't been helped by that because the power play has been sputtering and they haven't killed well. And uh, that's really hurt them in, in games with a lot of penalties. And, you know, some reason why the power play is sputtering, we've seen some hesitation. And, and, you know, specifically, even in that 7-1 huge victory, you don't get a point out of Elias Pettersson. I'm curious what your thoughts of are of him now coming into his third NHL season. Uh, I mean, it just it feels like something's off through eight games here. Well, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, uh, maybe it's guilt over changing his agent. I mean... Uh, what he did to Michael Deutsch wasn't exactly very nice. Oh, one of the Uh, nicest guys I've ever talked to, too. Yeah, um, Michael did a lot of good for this kid, gave him a lot of really sound advice, and I know Mike told him, look, we can handle these negotiations any any way you want. And I would, you know, right now, Michael Deutsch would be an agent I would very seriously look at if I was a player. Hmm. And for him to walk away... Uh, Like, I don't know why he would do that. And uh, I'm curious to know what his decision was in that process. Now, I've heard the leverage theory talked about. Maybe he looked at some of the, like the the Erickson contract and said, man, if he can do that for Erickson, what could he get for me? (laughs) I mean, I I could see, you know, what could those two guys get for me? But, uh, and... And that's why he made the move. But, uh, you know, that was a knife in the back for Michael. And uh, um, I don't know what to say about him. And right now he shows uh, to me that he's lacking in energy. And, uh, like, maybe he's heard the numbers and he's thinking, geez, I'm not going to be signing in Vancouver. And he's off-put. I don't know what's going on. But Mm -hmm. he's clearly not himself. He's just... He has no bounce. He's got no interest. And now his performance on the power play, I think, is partly being impacted by Quinn Hughes is 
passing has just not been very accurate. He hasn't been able to get it into the wheelhouse too often. So many times, uh, Elias on that side, when he's on that side, and they started off the power play at the outset of the season with him on the other side, on the left side, which is an alternative look, but mostly it's with him on that Henrik Sedin side there. And and, uh, Coyne has not been able to get the puck into his wheelhouse as often as I'm sure he'd like, and that's hurt, and, uh, you know, he's hit, hit some iron and missed the net a couple of times, but when his shooting percentage is one out of 18, you know he's struggling. Absolutely, and I think that it, it's funny because, like, seeing the success that Bo Horvat's had in that bumper position, like, it has opened up ice for Elias Pettersson, who yeah, really yeah. was getting the spotlight at, you know, to whether be able it was... To walk into the middle at times. Oh, absolutely. Too. I mean, think about it, the second half of his first year and, and pretty much the whole second season. I mean, they had to have a guy there every single time on the penalty kill because you mentioned it, like, the the goal of the power play for so long... I mean, not so long, but like a year and a half, maybe two years, was feed Pedersen on that one-timer. That's our best bet of scoring a goal. But now that you have options, it feels like it should be easier. But I wonder if it's just a little bit of hesitation, and maybe you're you're kind of onto something maybe, Tony, with some off-ice stuff that might be hurting his game. Well, it's entirely possible. I mean, I know that for him to make the move had to be a difficult one for right. him. I don't imagine he made it lightly. Uh, I don't know what kind of romance they came with him at, but uh, or for whatever reason why he decided to make the change. A lot of times it's personal, um, but uh, it's it's a big step in a player's career, especially one as young as uh, as Elias is. And having had the success that he did, and then he makes this move, suddenly success is not there. He's got to be questioning. At least that part, he can't call Michael and say, well, what do you think about me? And, and 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 Mike's been a guy who studied him now for seven, eight, nine years, yeah. would know exactly what to tell him. I mean, these new guys, I mean, J.P. didn't, I mean, I don't imagine he knows what to say, right. you know? Yeah, I And agree. so th- that avenue's closed off to him. It only leads leaves Travis, who's feeling a little insecure in his own right, I'm sure. And uh, so I'm just wondering who he's got to go to. Uh, I mean, a lot of times teammates have big impacts in Mm. these agent changes. You know, you're sitting next to a guy in the locker room and and they start talking about agents and one guy says, well, why don't you take a look at so-and-so? I know... I know uh, the other guy's really happy with him, and I'm happy with him. I, you, you should give him a call at least, you know, if, yeah. you're, if you have any doubts or or you're concerned. And um, and so that's how these changes often come about. And uh, I just don't know what happened. I mean, I don't get a chance to talk to him, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I, I would certainly find out if if I did have that opportunity, although, again, the media environment is so sterile now. I'm really, really glad to be out of that. I, <laughs> I couldn't have functioned in that uh, kind of environment. I'd go out of my mind. I just, I, I'd have to go and do something else. I, I couldn't go back to the profession, even if I wanted to return to work. Yeah, it's, 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 it's to just learn, too honestly. ugly for words right now. Yeah, I, I, I maybe want to get maybe some more input about you and how much you might have dealt with 
or been around the situations with CAA and Pat Brisson, JP Barry. Obviously, they have Tyler Myers, they have Quinn Hughes, Louis Erickson, Jet Wu, now they Elias all Patterson. out contracts. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Think for the player, absolutely. I'm curious, like, what kind of dealings did you have with with big agencies like that compared to you know smaller agents that deal with players at a young age and kind of? Well, them up I mean, like I've Mike. known JP for 35 years. Uh, he and I have been really good friends ever since he was with Michael Barnett and uh, hmm. and Barney and I were really tight and close and I got to know JP through uh, through Barney and uh, and uh, that was a great relationship so I know JP much better than I do Brisson uh, although I've, I've, I've spoken with him and we've had a very cordial and helpful relationship so both those guys are terrific with the media. They're great to talk to, um, but I imagine they're very busy and don't have a whole lot of time. I think they're both great agents. Don't get me wrong. I mean, um, but so also was, was Michael Deutsch, and he was also in a much, much better position to be the, the kind of go-to uh, off-the-ice coach that so many of the agents are. Whereas I just don't think these guys, I think once they've had the player maybe for two or three years, they'll be able to fulfill that role for for Elias. But right now he's got nobody in that role. And it's, we've uh, heard a lot of reports. But they're good guys. I, I had great relationships with almost all the agents. I mean, I made it my business to have good relationships with them. Yeah, I think yeah, I'm starting to work on that a little bit myself, actually. I think that... It's. I'm curious because you mentioned it, and we've heard um, Elliot Friedman's kind of reported on a lot that you know, and it doesn't doesn't surprise me to hear this news. But how much maybe a guy like Elias Pettersson leaned on another fellow Sweden, Jacob Markstrom, who's now gone. And I'm wondering if that might be the situation. Like, who is he leaning on right now? If it's not a veteran, and if he's moving now with the same agent as Quinn Hughes, and that relationship we know between Pettersson and Hughes is so tight. Like these young guys, I feel like when you don't lean on a veteran or a guy who's been around it or a guy that you've been with for a long time, it's it's just a very different way of trying to go through the NHL, I guess, when you're not leaning on someone like he has in the past. Well, you, you've got to have someone to talk to away from the team uh, and not your father, you know, or mm-hmm. not your parents. And uh, These guys have tremendous support systems. Uh, most of them have wives or girlfriends, and I don't think Elias is at that point yet where he's got a wife and girl or girlfriend to go home to and because uh, he's been extremely dedicated to his career right. and it's really served him well. Don't get me wrong, I'm not being critical. Absolutely. Um, but uh, it, it's, um, you know, it's a situation where I think he's probably just a little bit at loose ends and, you know, Quinn Hughes doesn't have the background to be able to help him. They can, you know, he can say, well, keep going at it, you know, keep trying and all that and... Uh, and stay with it and everything will work out and he can say that but he can't like i mean a guy like george could pinpoint exactly you know things that in alicia's game that he may be lacking in or maybe overdoing certain things i mean because he's watched his game closely for a number of years and seen it develop and knows when he struggled in the past i mean He's never struggled in the NHL, Mm -hmm. so no one has a clue of what's going on with him struggling. Uh, And and Mike would have seen that. So it was just it's just bad timing right now. And I think 
I mean, even the Canucks coaches can't really help much because they've never seen him struggle. Right. And it's so new to everybody here in this town to watch him seemingly kind of lack energy and uh, get bumped off the puck and not have that tenacity and uh, be missing his shots instead of the clinical pinpoint stuff that we're used to. And I'm sure we'll see again. Absolutely. Uh, it's just, um, it's a strange situation. I'm curious, like, if we can look at it from the other end of the stick here, Tony, and think that maybe moving to one of these big-name agents, I know that, you know, it's it's tough to go away from a guy who's been working with you since you're a teenager, a young teenager probably too, but looking at these big-name agents who have dealt with a lot of superstars, I wonder if there is a sounding board for them there. Well, yeah, perhaps, but they haven't told Tyler Myers to stop moving the puck on his backhand. <laughs> I mean, is, is that backhand not fatal or what? I mean, you know, I go back to what Gillis, Mike Gillis used to tell all his players uh, as a general manager, as an agent, all his defenseman friends, and I know it was one of the staples of Dan Hughes. Get the puck on your forehand and move it. Mm. And, and when a defenseman in his own zone is going to the backhand, look out. Mm. That's when the mistakes are made. That's when uh, you know non-definitive plays can happen much more readily than when you're on your forehand. I mean, you can give the puck away either way, but... Unless you're an extremely good player with your backhand, mistakes happen far more often on that side when you go to move it, especially if you're trying to move it hard to the backhand. That's a really difficult skill. And, uh, you know, like most good defensemen in this league get the puck as quickly as they can to their forehand, and they're already looking to move it while they're moving it to the forehand. When you move the puck on your backhand, generally speaking, more mistakes happen. It's exactly why Tyler Myers is minus four at the moment and <laughs> and suffering, let's put it that way. Yeah, that makes sense. I've just, for some reason, when you brought that up, I just thought of Scott Niedemeyer, but he's definitely the outlier in this situation. That, that backhand well, feed outliers, the yeah, Absolutely. But, but, you're, but you're right, like, even the backhand from Quinn Hughes we've seen at times do some pretty bad giveaways this year. Well, the back, you know, it's it's already in the offensive zone in most cases. Right. Where you can try nifty stuff, but when you're doing it in your own end, that's fatal. It's fatal for any defenseman, and they all know this in their heads, but they all think they can do it, and they've all done it all their whole careers. Right. But it's really tough to do it in this league. Absolutely, and probably a little bit of a shocker out of the early part of the season. I mean, you come into practice, you make a couple of nice ones at training camp, and you think, oh, I'm going to yep. try this in a game. Yep. Right? Yeah, so it's when you're being forechecked by guys who have no chance to make the team. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then suddenly guys on you, and you're it, everything changes in, in the game, and especially now when the in this speed game, in this clinical game, we're talking about with no fans, the players are on you quicker, even still another shade quicker than they are in the real game mm. with fans because it's all about. There's no noise to distract any player. He knows exactly where he's got to be. This is my four-check spot. i got to get in there. And he's there just that much quicker. So 
it's it's that much more difficult for a defenseman to move the puck out of his own end. Absolutely. I think we've seen an extraordinary number of giveaways. Oh yeah. Because of that <laughs> this this season especially. Most definitely. I think people listening to this will probably start to notice that a little bit more specifically with Tyler Myers. Uh but uh, I want to move to a positive note for the Vancouver Canucks a little bit in this rookie in Nils Huglander. I mean, I I talked to sure. you a little bit off yeah. there. This kid has been impressing me for 2 years. And right now he's almost multiplied that by 10 with how impressed I am seeing what he's been able to do at the NHL. What do you think about this kid so far, Tony? Well, Chris, I mean, I think you're less surprised than I was because, <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, let's say 19 out of 20 uh, guys that you hear hyped about being in the pipeline and that, they end up flopping, mm. you know. They end up getting to, the game, getting to the NHL, maybe playing a few games and not doing much of anything. Uh, but this kid is, I mean... So I, when they brought him to camp and that, I thought, oh, it'll be interesting to see how he does. Yeah. But I did not expect him to make the team. I did not expect him to have this bounce. Um, but again, he's really helped by the type of hockey they're playing. Hmm. It lends itself to speed and quickness and um, and lack of size almost. I, I don't mean that. It's just that it's a play. It's the era of the 165-pounder right now. Hmm. And the 200-pounder is almost an ox. Or the 220-pounder is almost yeah. an ox. Uh, and it's, I mean, the, the days of Milan Lucic being a star in this league, as long as there are, certainly as long as there are no fans in the building, it'll, it'll get um, more pronounced. And it's just, that's just the way that they want the game to go. Speed and quickness, speed and quickness, and lesser impacts when players do hit by virtue of being smaller. And that's the game they're tailoring. That's why you're seeing a ton of penalties called. And that's the game they want. And maybe it's the game we all want. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm not putting a downer on that uh, because it does lead to very, very entertaining hockey at times. Um, but certainly the physical element is being de-emphasized. And, uh, and uh, you know, it, it changes it for me a little bit because most of my career was spent uh, being around the more physical type of game and and, and seeing that incorporated in as part of the uh, part of the show, part of the culture, mm. and part of the environment whereby you needed to have certain elements to exist in that environment. It's great they're getting the smaller, quicker player in the game, but I think it's almost, it, it's in danger. I don't think it's there yet, but it's in danger of going overboard where only the Goudreau types are going to be able to play. And uh, your, your skill level is going to have to be all, you know, lights out all world to even compete. And uh, not that it isn't already. I mean, these guys are tremendous players. I don't mean to. But I mean, the Brandon Sutters will be yeah. totally phased out and uh, and just go, just never be heard from again. Yeah, no, it's very possible. I mean, every single draft, I'm sure that the average height has probably dropped since <laughs> probably since the '80s. I'm sure that every single draft, you looked at the average height of a player and weight of a player. Like, I, I'd actually kind of want to track that because that must be interesting to see. Yeah, and yet Alex Adler is probably still their most effective defenseman, isn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, Quinn from Hughes. a defensive Quinn point Hughes. of view. Yeah, defensive, know. yeah. I think that that's been the pairing that, you know, there's been mistakes throughout this year, 
But the pairing that I've been most comfortable with in the defensive zone is Nate Schmidt and Alex Edler with the combination yeah. of, of Edler being able to be the two heaviest guys back there yep. other than Myers. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> That's a different kind of heavy, Tony. <laughs> yeah, it is indeed. Uh. Uh, so I, I, I don't know what the, the defense, I mean, uh, it's very vulnerable as, you know, Eddie's getting older and, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, Myers is playing 22 minutes a night or a little over 21 minutes a night. That's kind of a demand on him, especially at this quickness level. Um, and uh, so the back, you know, Quinn is still learning. Quinn Hughes is still learning. And it's um, Schmidt's finding is, you know, he's getting into a new city and that he's doing okay. He's at 22 minutes, but I think he's used to handling that. Yeah. But, uh, the forwards haven't been overly helpful. There's no doubt about that. They, they've been out of position, not able to pick up guys storming down the middle the way they have been. Uh, it's been an extraordinary assault on the Vancouver goal. And, uh, there's a reason why they've been giving up some goals. There's no doubt about it. Most definitely. And uh, as we're kind of wrapping up here, Tony, I want to ask about uh, Nate Schmidt a little bit. We've, you know, now that myself and my co-host David have been part of these media Zoom calls and getting able to, you know, talk to players, uh, this Nate Schmidt character, I don't know how much of the interviews you've seen, but, like, have you seen a lot of players that have had that character over the past 10 years? Because it feels like he almost got pushed out of the game uh, when the 2010s turned over. Well, I mean, I've heard of all the pranks and things he's done and uh that i mean i have not been around him so i don't know how easy or how much fun he is or how difficult he can be to take which i'm i'm sure that people are in several or or in one category or the other Mm. um but he's certainly pretty skilled and it's going to be hard to push that kind of skill out of the league but Mm. uh we shall see uh i haven't seen many of the interviews he is a character. The league's always been full of characters. I mean, Mark Andre Fleury, when he first came in, uh, granted he's in a position where, you know, he just was there kind of doing his own thing on the ice, but off the ice, he was a, a lunatic practical joker. So, uh, you know, there, there's been lots of guys like that around, but, uh, you know, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see as, uh, I kind of want to want the game to get back to normal and get media coverage back to normal. And so then I think we'll be able to learn a little bit more about these guys, a little bit about their true nature. I mean, Zoom calls, sorry, I'm not a big fan. Uh, you're not the only one there. Tony, that's yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm not. Yeah. Hey, be Tony, tough for you guys. <laughs> as, we're, uh, as we're wrapping up here, this will be my final question. And it's funny because I'm taking it five years back to uh, one of my favorite quotes of yours on radio, talking about the lonely pancake. I'm sure you remember this one. Uh, but oh, I, yeah. I wanted to extend it a little bit because you've been a guy who's traveled a lot with the team, been around all of North America, all around the world, I'm sure. Uh, and this is kind of a food question to kind of close out this interview with. <laughs> what is the best meal, the most extravagant, amazing meal that you've ever had in your life? You've been around a little bit longer than me, so I want to hear something here. Oh, there's been some great ones in New York, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where you're you're in for a lot of dough and, uh, and a small group. I, I hated the large group of guys that went out. I, I never liked those much. I liked the intimate, you know four to six guys and uh, and just a quiet dinner but we 
we've had some beauties. I I've had so many memorable ones. I thought so. <laughs> um, in Quebec City, I think is uh, there are so many brilliant restaurants in Quebec City that the mind boggles. Hmm. Um, my my favorite place there. I couldn't pick one, you know. Uh, the Café de Paris was always memorable. Uh, I, I don't know. Just uh, I've had good ones in Minnesota, if you can believe it or not. Good yeah. ones in L.A. Uh, I couldn't pick a memorable one because, you know, all for me, all the best ones have been with my wife, usually, right. or with my family. Those are the, the memorable ones to me. The ones with writers, I remember one year they had the draft in Quebec City mm. and all the activity leading up to the draft. We were there about a week before and we would go out for dinner every night leading up to the draft. And then they used to have the draft uh, was on Saturday, was it? Saturday afternoon, I think it was in the East. And, uh, so... Every day up until Saturday, which you case you'd be working late, but every day up till Saturday went out for dinner, and we had a series of great meals. I mean, the per diem was just ransacked <laughs> several days in, you know, and yeah. uh, but it was hard to walk away. You'd put on five pounds or something if you weren't in the gym <laughs> all the time. So, yeah, there's been been some great ones and. But oftentimes, usually when you get to know a place, I mean, uh, we yeah. come out of restaurants. I remember coming out of a restaurant one night with Jim Kelly, the late Jim Kelly, mm. the great Jim Kelly from the Buffalo News. And we were in lower part of Old Town in Quebec City. And we decided to walk back to the hotel. We're both half cut. <laughs> he more so than me. And he's <laughs> singing, When the Moon Hits Your Eye. Like a big pizza pie, it's a more, <laughs> And uh, I was trying to tone him down because I was always drinking less than, than a lot of these guys, as will be attested by many. Okay, I was going to say, and, that's what they all say, Tony. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that will be attested by many. Okay, I was I'll take your word. often the, the, the only sober guy. <laughs> and um, then they, then he got to the second verse, which, which was X-rated. <laughs> at the top and the third verse and uh, all the way walking up to the top of the old town mm. on the ways with Jim Kelly was one of the memorable meals and memorable experiences we had. But in the old days, we had a lot of fun because there wasn't the internet. Right. You didn't have all these constant demands. Mm. When something happened, that's fine. Mm -hmm. It can wait. I'll go back to the hotel, make a few calls. You didn't have to have a story up 10 minutes from now to make sure we're oh, yeah. covered. <laughs> the job was a lot more palatable in the old days. There was a day when the province didn't publish. Mm. So we always had Friday off, basically, even on the road, which led to some memorable trips to... Atlantic City from Philadelphia and from New York and places like that to go and to the casinos for a little bit on the off day. I mean, we had a lot more fun in those days. It was just uh, a better life. Mm. The reporter's life now is pretty much total misery. I mean, 
I hear what Ben Kuzma goes through. I run into Kuz from time to time here in the neighborhood. And mm-hmm. It's it's tough. It's just so different, and uh, I just can't begin to think about living a life like that. I, I I'm pretty sure that early on, had it been like it is now, I would have left and gone and done something else. But uh, mercifully, it wasn't. I had a lot of fun met a lot of great people and I have uh, no regrets so uh, that's all I can say we had a we had um, just a wonderful time a wonderful career and I'm still enjoying watching the team so it's good to see that's good hey hey Tony no regret sounds like a good name for a book by the way I know I, I'm already <laughs> writing a book it has nothing to do with sports so okay. let's, <laughs> but I uh, I may get around to doing that one of these days if I'm but the thing is, it's got such limited appeal, and you can't make a ton of dough off a, a Vancouver book. So, mm. Okay. Well, I had to push for it anyways, Tony. <laughs> you know me, I'm greedy. <laughs> yeah. All right, Tony. Well, uh, I feel a little greedy taking up almost 40 minutes of your time here. So uh, I appreciate Not you coming worry, back Chris, on the my, show. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to get you back on the show. And, uh, yeah, we'll definitely have to keep up uh, back and forth with some emails as the season goes on here. Appreciate you taking the time, Tony. Not a problem. It's been fun. And a massive, massive, massive thank you to Tony Gallagher, the Hall of Famer himself. Chris, this has been a very weird episode. We talked about acting for the first 12 minutes. Can't believe it took us that long and we went into it that much. Talk to Tony Gallagher. The week ahead for the Canucks, Chris, it's kind of interesting. They've got Montreal on Wednesday night. And then they've got a back to or Montreal, sorry, Ottawa on Wednesday night, and they've got a back to back with another game on Thursday. I'm going to ask you a question, Chris, because I want to see what you say. Thatcher Demko turns in the best start of his season last night. Do you go back to him on Wednesday and start Holtby on the second half of that back to back, or do you keep going with the one A one B rotation as they have been and start Holtby on Wednesday? giving Demko the start on Thursday. Yeah, I see what you're doing here. You just want to talk goalies, but uh, I think it, it goes back to it goes to Holtby on Wednesday, I think. And then I think you go to Demko on Thursday. I mean, if he got a shutout, I think we're talking about something a little bit different. But, you know, I, I tweeted it out that the Canucks have given up, like, every single game this season, they've given up 30-plus scoring chances. Quietly in that 7-1 to win, they were outchanced by the Ottawa Senators, 33-26. to like, Thatcher Demko was good. Like, he was good in that game on Monday. I know a 7-1 victory is going to look like the, you know, the players did an excellent job, but he was he was really good on that game on Monday. So it wouldn't shock me to see him hop in back on Wednesday, but I do think that it's still kind of early in the season where Green's trying to, feel, like, feel things out a little bit. You know what? If it was a Montreal, like, say this was the second series against Montreal or or you're playing Toronto or, or one of the teams that you think is going to be one of the better ones in this division, I do think you might go back to Holtby and kind of ride that hot streak but you're playing Ottawa you have that second back-to-back I think the extra day of rest it'll be to Demko but you I know that you've seen a lot of people criticizing the goaltenders of the first seven games and it's kind of pissed you off a little bit it's so stupid it's so stupid Chris okay so I put out a tweet last night because Demko was just phenomenal okay and I said remember when you tweeted that the Canucks goaltenders needed to be better question mark lol and there were a few people that replied, you're like, yeah, they did need to be better. Now they're better, so, so far, so good. And I'm like, no, that's not the point. Like, the Canucks, in the first first seven games of the season, 
they weren't even playing anything resembling defense. Like, it, they weren't even trying, Chris. It was like the goaltenders were just hung out to dry. I have stats, okay? I've got the stats, okay? The here we first, go. the series against Montreal, that's where we're starting here, okay? Because that was where people were like, oh, look at their save percentages. They got to be better. Here is how many high danger... They had a, Montreal had 100 chances. The Canucks had 61. These are just total chances, okay? So don't worry. Those are just total chances. The high danger percentage chance. This is from ClearSight Analytics, who analyzes goaltenders, and they, they are the place to go for, uh, for all goaltending data. 33% of those were high danger chances, okay? No, sorry. 33 of them led to 14 goals okay the expected goals is is ridiculous like i don't even know how to break this down properly because it's like the canucks goaltenders were not the issue in those games like holtby and demko were getting hung out to dry so badly like more than i have ever seen in recent memory like we're talking even worse than what markstrom was playing behind last year like there was more defensive miscues in those games than there was against markstrom all of last season and we know how good markstrom was last season and how many flaws he masked like this was worse like a objectively worse they were not good in this series on the other end of the ice the Canucks generated nine chances led to five goals okay 33 for Montreal led to 14 and then you've got one of the best tandems in the league at the other end in Carey Price and Jake Allen they let in five on nine and nobody was saying they were bad and it's just like you have to understand just how how bad the defense was and I think Thatcher Demko is great. I'm not trying to take anything away from him when I say this, but Demko's performance is in part a product of the defense playing something that resembles defense. And I shouldn't even say the defense because it's the entire team. They started to play like a five-man unit. Again, when we talk about systems, one thing we're seeing a lot of is the center is dropping back more on the breakouts. There's less turnovers on the breakout because the center's there to back up the defenseman when they're trying to break out. You'll notice that. Watch that in the next Canucks game. And as Chris was saying, the forecheck is better. They're they're maintaining possession of the puck more. They need to keep doing that and they need to play like a five-man unit. This is what we're talking about when the players are are talking about, oh, we just need to buy into the system. Uh, we're, Nate Schmidt saying he does quite understand everything and he's got to work at it and get used to the new system and it's easy to revert back to what you knew if you get lost out there so they're learning the system I think the practice was a really 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 big factor for this team starting to look like they could turn it around like the thing is Chris we were talking about and everybody's like oh two and five record you guys are so negative it was how they were losing they were getting just beat so badly in every area of the ice They weren't playing any defense. It was really, really tough. And the goaltenders, in my opinion, were the only thing that was fine slash good in those first games. In those seven games, I think the goaltenders were good. Here's the issue. They didn't have a practice since training camp. Like, you're just... You're falling behind and you're playing top teams. You can't get your legs under you. You can't learn systems on the fly like that. Like, it's just not... It's it's not reasonable to think that that could happen. Yes, you want Pedersen to play better, and it's not all on the defensive systems that they're not winning games. Like, yes, you need your top line to play much better than that, sure. But I think 
Sunday's practice, you're starting to see early returns of it. Even if it's just, okay, remember, you've got to drop back this far. You've got to stand here. Like, don't leave your spot and make sure that you're backing up on this. So if there is a turnover, we're not hung out to dry. Like, we're seeing more of that, right? Like, there's just too many high danger chances against Holtby and Demko in that series against Montreal. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot less of that going forward. We need to see a lot less of it if the Canucks want any chance of winning because their goaltenders have been doing their part, but the Canucks defense has to do their part in front of them yeah and I think that win on Monday is so huge for Thatcher Demko's confidence because he's not the reason that they've been losing these games right like that's that's kind of what I think your point is is he's not the reason they've been losing these games but when you see the stats pop up on the screen when the game's about to start and you see Thatcher Demko goals against over five save percentage or in the 800s like that's a tough look and you don't and you know that that goaltender is thinking like Maybe in the certain situation, like, I didn't let my team down tonight, but I also didn't help them win enough to get a win, right? Like, I know that goalies are thinking sort of things like that. So a win like that, where he makes, what is it, 36 saves, I believe, or 35 out of 36 saves in a game on Monday, I think that's a huge confidence booster for a guy in Thatcher Demko, who a lot of people are going to have their eyes on all season long to see if he's pushing to become a starter. So I I think it was a huge step in the right direction on Monday, but... That's one step forward. They can't take two steps back with these back-to-backs against the Ottawa Senators. And to me, like, a split would be a letdown, honestly. Like, it would be. Like, I'm not just, like, okay after what you saw on Monday. I wouldn't just be okay with a split now. Like, I think the Canucks need to go out and win these games. Like, it's, I don't know. It's similar to, like, we said in baseball, right? Like, if you boat race a team in the first game of a three-game series 14-1... to like you want you want to beat that team again. You want to beat that team, you know, 10 to 2 and then 7 to 3 and like that's how you ride that series out. The Canucks need to do that in the rest of these these two games against the Ottawa Senators because this this Senators team like very much resembles what a really good AHL team looks like. Like man, the Utica Comets last year at the start of the season when they were absolutely buzzing on like their 8 and 0 or 10 and 0 record whatever it was, like that team probably stood a chance against what the Senators did on Monday night. So, I don't know. I'm going to stick with that, and uh, that's all I kind of got. I need to see a solid performance now going from this team on Wednesday and Thursday because, any to me, anything less than two wins is a letdown after what you did on Monday. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. I think that's a good place to wrap it up, Chris. Prospects. We will be back on Saturday. It's prospects. A... Oh, okay, go ahead. Talking prospects. Just because my boy's back in action. Vasily Pod Cole's been back in action on Wednesday morning after like a six-day break or whatever Scott's been going through. They're playing a pretty weak team, so I'm hoping that Pod Colson gets, you know, maybe 13, 14 minutes of ice time. He's on a two-game point streak right now, so uh, we'll have to see what's going on with him, see if he can, you know, continue to build on the momentum that he's kind of got going on. It's kind of a tough time for a break, but he's back in action on Wednesday morning. Uh, Arvid Kosmar, shoulder injury. He's still out for a little bit. It's not going to be... It's not going to be a long-term injury, but I think he's kind of battling it day-to-day right now. Uh, and Dmitry Zlodiev, he's kind of been bouncing around, hasn't been really been playing in the MHL or the VHL much. I've sort of thought that he might be able to get that KHL chance here pretty soon. He mentioned it to me last time I talked to him that he was supposed to start before he got injured. 
So it wouldn't shock me if we start to see Zlodiev hop up in the KHL here pretty soon. So that's something to keep an eye on. That would be really exciting news for the Canucks. Uh, was he seventh round draft pick last year? No, sixth round draft pick last sixth. year? Yeah. Sixth. Yeah, sixth round in 2020. So if he's hopping into the lineup for the KHL already, that's that's a really promising sign uh, for a kid who does an excellent job you know, playing a two-way game as a center. So I'm excited to see if that's the, the thing that's keeping him out of the VHL and MHL right now. So, uh, you know, holding out on a Zlodiev KHL debut here soon. Absolutely. I bet on some MHL games the other night. Uh, that didn't Man. end well, but I put $2 You saw what in. I was betting on the other night, and I hit that parlay, too. You did. You're starting to bet on CSGO. That's when you realize you're getting to the real degenerate levels. Hey, man, I just I looked at a couple websites. I looked at the projections. They projected sweeps in all those CSGO games. I don't even know how a CSGO game works. Uh, but they all projected sweeps, and I was like, all right, not bad odds. I'll add them onto the parlay. Boom, parlay hit. Eight-person parlay. Thank you very I much. It. I I love it, Chris. That's a good place to wrap. My name is David Quadrelli. For Chris Faber, you have been listening to the Canucks Conversation.